everybody and welcome back to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. My name is Danny. And I'm Giacomo. And this is our 38th episode. So Giacomo, you've had some really cool stuff going on lately uh, with your training. Why don't you, I know you're super excited, why don't you tell people about what's going on? Uh, I don't know, I'm just gonna, I'm not gonna stop talking if I stop talking about my bench. It's been like, geez, two and a half, two and a half freaking years of trying to get any sort of progress whatsoever with my bench. And it's it's been like nerve wracking. Um, I've actually, my, my one rep max actually went down by like about five pounds since I started training for it. But my work capacity has increased tenfold. But when you're a power lifter, your work capacity doesn't matter. It's no. just your one rep max. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, hey, everybody, I can train my bench every single day and, and not get sore, but it doesn't mean anything. But I guess, like, long story short, you know, I haven't really seen my one rep, one rep max go up still, but I think it's about time. And I think the moral of the story is with some of your lifts that um, you need to take, you just need to take more time to build the capability to be able to to get stronger and to get your one rep max up. So if your one rep max hasn't actually gone up, what have you been excited about this whole time? Now I'm confused. <laughs> well, I well I, I to me, if I'm not on the platform and I don't complete a lift where the where the max is higher, then to me it, it hasn't gone up yet. So the next time I compete, though, I believe that I will be pring. Right. <laughs> no. Okay, this whole time I thought your one rep max went up and that's why you were so psyched. So this whole intro is now just really confusing to me. My estimated so one you, rep max. So you're really excited because you think your one rep max is going to go up very soon. Yeah. Right. I, wish I, <laughs> I wish I had that kind of optimism for legitimately anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> what about you though? Speaking of like optimism and your prep and all that jazz, I mean you're powering through it, right? Yeah, uh, this... It's been like the most awesome prep and also the most horrible prep ever simultaneously. So, uh, yeah, we are, I am, 13 weeks into this prep, um, closer to like 10 actual weeks of dieting and down about 13 pounds, which is cool. Um, and everything is coming in really, really well, but, and this is a really big but, I have developed adhesive capsulitis, which is also called frozen shoulder. And it's exactly what it sounds like. My shoulder capsule, which the best way I can describe a shoulder capsule is picture your clavicle, your humerus, your arm bone, and your scapula. You know, they're all connected with tendons and ligaments and stuff, right? Well, now imagine that those tendons and ligaments and such are sort of like wrapped in a soft protective casing. That's your shoulder capsule. Mine has become incredibly inflamed and essentially turned to stone. So all three of those bones, my clavicle, my humerus, and my scapula are essentially moving as one as though they're in a cast and it has made everything about a million times more difficult. So basically your arm, no one can see that your arm is messed up when you're like just walking around, but essentially you're living with your arm in a cast. Just no one can see it. Uh, no, if I, if I try to move it and I did post an Instagram post that demonstrated this, if I do try to move like both my arms at the same time, it's very clear that they are incredibly different and not muscularly. Uh, although 
my injured side is, I think, starting to atrophy a tiny bit, although I'm doing everything in my power to stop that from happening, which I could talk about later. Um, but you can see it. I mean, they're all, they're moving completely as one. So training is hard enough and I've adapted all of my training. Literally, I don't think, I, I could count the number of exercises where, that were completely unaffected by this on one hand. Everything else has been affected and has had to be modified, incredibly so. Um, but even things like putting on a jacket, putting up my hair, um, getting something off of a shelf, like I can't, I'm like the tin man. I can't do it. I feel like I need an oil can. Um, so yeah, everything's been modified. I'm now going to physical therapy twice a week, chiropractor once a week, and the massage therapist once a week, uh, probably spending 10 hours a week total just trying to get this to happen faster because adhesive capsulitis, one, happens oftentimes for no reason. So there was no injury to my shoulder. Nothing was wrong with my shoulder. It just randomly started freezing um, for no reason, which is probably the most frustrating part of it all is that I didn't even do anything for this to happen. Um, it happens mostly to women, usually women age 40 to 65, which I am not. Usually women or you have a higher likelihood if you have diabetes or a thyroid condition, which I do not. So this was just like a real stroke of bad luck. But the shitty thing is that there's nothing you can do to make it go away. Uh, it will go away on its own, which is great news, but it can take anywhere from one to three years. So this is a huge, huge wrench in my prep works. I remember the doctor saying six months to three years, depending on the person. I mean, obviously, like, it, there's a, a for it to thaw and not go away completely, which I guess I have two questions for you. And this leads me to my first question. One, I mean, we don't need optimism here. We need realism. You're really good at realism. So realistically speaking, what do you think the odds are of this thing being mostly thought out by the time you're ready to hop up on stage? I think it's pretty slim. I think that it's... I can't put a number on it, but I think it's a slim chance that it's going to be healed by the time I'm competition lean. And if I continue dieting with it in kind of a compromised position, it will certainly atrophy if I can't train it the same way. So even if hypothetically it were thawed and mobile by the time I was competition lean, um, it's going to look small when I pose it. So, uh, yeah, I'm not... I'm not really sure. I'm just taking it day by day right now, hoping to sort of unfuse those bones. I think if I can just unfuse the humerus from the scapula, then we might be in business, but I'm just going to keep prepping along anyway, because otherwise, other than this major problem, my prep has been going absolutely wonderfully. Best prep ever. So mm -hmm. I want to keep going and kind of like, you know, learn learn some more information about myself for the future um, and kind of just see what happens at the end when we get there. Yeah. I mean, I'm sort of a not hopeless optimist. You know that about me. And I, and I think you have a 50-50 chance. So maybe the odds are against you that it will be mostly thought out by the time you're, you know, you can get there and prep before the season's over. But who knows? I mean, anything's possible. You're doing a lot of work on it. And uh, I applaud you for that. It's just it just speaks miles uh, about you and the, the part of you that motivates me to be better. Um, and then the other cool thing about this prep that is um, obviously experience has has gotten you to this point 
where you, you, um, you're going to be getting arguably leaner than you ever have before with more muscle than you ever have before. Um, and to do that, like naturally there are more roadblocks, like your body always fights you when you want it to change more. Right. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. So, you know, I'm kind of curious to know what has gotten you to this point where you're able, obviously it hasn't happened yet, but it, it, it looks like you're going to be able to get leaner and have more muscle on your frame than you ever have before. Um, and obviously you have to work harder for that, but you seem to have figured out that formula. I don't really think it's a formula. I mean, I wish it was a formula because if it was, I could just sort of teach it to everybody. I think it's just experience and having gone through this process, not with the injury, but gone through this process so many times at this point that I just feel so much more chill about the whole situation. Like I remember my first contest prep, literally every single day felt like do or die. Um, like everything just felt so dire all the time. And I don't really feel like that anymore. Like I have my things I have to do and I check them off every day. And like, that is my prep. I don't need to, uh, you know, hype myself up every single day and go out there and try to be a beast and destroy myself and feel as shitty as possible at the end of the day. Uh, I can be chill and laid back about it still push and challenge myself and at the end of the day achieve probably better results because I'm not so stressed out about it. So yeah, I guess that's it. Um, but today, uh, to add on to what you were just saying, today we're going to be talking about um, what happens when you are on some kind of a fat loss journey and progress plateaus, basically. Uh, it's March, it's the end of March right now. So a lot of people that started, you know, deciding that they wanted to lose some body fat at the beginning of the year, they've been at it for the same amount of time as me, about 13 weeks. And maybe in the last few weeks, uh, progress has slowed down significantly and you don't know why, one, what's going on and two, what the heck to do about it. So today we're just going to have like a little talk about that because I think it's something that we anybody who's on a fat loss journey will go through at some point. So I think what people don't realize is that just because we want something to happen mentally and we will ourselves to do it and we create this plan and we stick to it and it's it's aggressive to even sometimes extreme that they're going to get the results they're looking for. But, you know, the truth of the matter is that our bodies crave homeostasis and they they are very adept at adapting to whatever it is that we do. And I think one of the things that people don't understand is if you have a harder time losing fat, that actually means that you have a more adaptable metabolism. Likewise, if you have a hard time building muscle, a lot of people just say like, you know, if they do lose fat really well or gain muscle really well, they say, oh, I have such a super adaptable metabolism. No, actually that means that your metabolism isn't adapting to the caloric deficit and that's why you're still making progress. So we kind of want our metabolisms to be as inefficient as possible. The more inefficient your metabolism is, the easier time you're gonna have reaching your muscle gaining and fat loss goals, which is kind of interesting, right? But when you think about it, if you have an efficient metabolism, right? If you had an efficient metabolism in the caveman days, you were the one who was gonna survive. Mr. Inefficient metabolism that, you know, could 
you would go through a famine and lose all of your weight, you die. But the person who's going through a famine and their body says, well, downregulate everything, they live through the famine. So I really think it's important to remember that when these, when these stalls happen, that really it's kind of a good thing. It means we would have... <laughs> We would have survived, and like that super lean guy over there, he probably would have croaked. So just something to think about when you're somebody who's like me, <laughs> and we have super efficient metabolisms, you know, just, just a little nugget I like to remind myself of. So when you're building your team for the apocalypse that's inevitably upon us... Like yeah, you just... want me. <laughs> you don't necessarily want me. Right, exactly. <laughs> um so yeah, what this means is when you are in a caloric deficit, your body has physiological responses to being in a caloric deficit, or from here on out, I'm just gonna call it an energy deficit because you can create a deficit, yes, by not eating enough calories, but you can also create a deficit by doing a ton of movement. So it's really an energy deficit. When you're in an energy deficit, your body goes through all kinds of hormonal, chemical, and just other physiological and even psychological changes to kind of stop that fat loss from happening because it wants you to survive the famine. But this is very, very frustrating to us when like Giacomo said, you know, you, you have a goal, you have a desire, you have the will, you have a plan that you've laid all out and you're executing it and you know a week in two weeks in three weeks in it just kind of stops working it feels like and you're like what the heck what is happening well what do i do now so what is actually happening so there are all these physiological processes going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of and quite frankly we don't even necessarily care about them we just want to see change but to understand the mechanisms and to understand what's happening um these things will allow you to be able to, to know when and how to make change. So there's several ways. There's several ways that our body expends energy. One of them is your basal metabolic rate. One of them is the thermic effect of your food. The next one would just be your lifestyle, your job, things like that. Um, and the last one would be your NEAT, your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So the first thing I think that we should be looking at is our basal metabolic rate. And I think it's easy to take a look at how much we're used to eating when we're just maintaining a certain body composition and body weight and being like, you know what, this is how much I should be eating and I can diet a little bit from here and it's gonna be all right, I'll get cut. Um, but what people don't realize you know, is that as they're dropping body fat and as they're losing weight, as they're becoming you know, a smaller person in essence, they're gonna burn fewer calories at rest and while they're active. And I mean, we have to account for that. And it can be frustrating because you get to this point and you're like, damn it, like why am I, why am I forced to eat so little and I'm still not making progress? And you can sort of like look at the way that you were before you started the cut and, and we're like, man, I'm just like, what am I doing wrong here? But the truth of the matter is you're not necessarily doing anything wrong. You're accounting for the fact that your, your body, you want your body in a different place. Yeah, let's say hypothetically that a person burns or a person's basal metabolic rate is around 10 calories per pound. Well, if you lost 10 pounds already, that in and of itself is 100 calories fewer that you would need to eat a day just from your basal metabolic rate. 
So that's an important thing to remember. The next one would be your thermic effect of food. We use a fair amount of energy just to digest the food that we eat. Um, between all the macronutrients, it's, it's probably around 10% or so. So if you're eating at the beginning of your diet, 1500 calories a day, then you're burning 150 calories just digesting that food. And that number is actually um, a bit higher uh, depending on how much protein you're taking in. But if you were eating 2,000 calories a day beforehand, then that would have been 200 calories you were burning just to eat your food. So when you lower your caloric intake, by definition, you lower the amount of energy you're spending digesting that food. Okay, so we've just explained two separate ways that your body downregulates how many calories it is burning through every day. One, you get smaller. Two, you eat less. Those two things mean you are burning less every day. These are two factors that are completely outside of our control. That's just the way it is. Aside from bumping up your protein to increase your thermic effect of food, there's really not a whole lot we can do about these things right here. But the next two we're gonna talk about are things that you can pay attention to and affect. And believe it or not, um, studies have shown that from the start of a diet to the end of a diet, usually someone's overall calorie expenditure is down maybe 15% or so. Roughly, yeah. Um, from what you would expect, right? Um, but of that 15%, 60% of those calories come from the next two things we're going to talk about. So of the amount that your metabolism slows down during a diet, which is going to happen to everybody... 60% of those calories can be accounted for in a way that we can make up for them as long as we know what to pay attention to. So the first one is just your lifestyle, um, your job, your day-to-day -day training. Those things matter a lot. If you're somebody who sits in front of a desk all day long, um, you're obviously going to be burning fewer calories than, say, a plumber or somebody who's like, up working with heavy stuff all day and moving from house to house or place to place all day. That person obviously burns more. But when we're dieting, uh, a lot of times we just sort of become lazy in the things that we would normally do. Uh, when we're well fed and have plenty of energy, we don't think twice about like picking up that extra shift or getting up several times a day to go to the bathroom if you sit at the desk, sit at a desk all day. But when you're dieting and your energy is a lot lower, I personally know that I have convinced myself that I can wait another hour to even go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> just because like, I don't feel like getting up right then. And I don't mean people, are, people that are dieting are lazy as in like their personalities are lazy. These are the things that your mind says to you in in your body's efforts to conserve your energy because again famine always think back to that these are all survival mechanisms for your body so if you know when you're well fed and happy if someone says hey do you want to go out tonight and you're like heck yeah i want to go out tonight but when you've been dieting for 10 weeks and someone says hey do you want to go out tonight and like netflix on the couch sounds like a million times better to you so you decide to do that instead 
It's funny, I'm kind of like remembering back in the day where people thought that we could outsmart our metabolism by just like grazing and eating 10 meals all day long. But it's like, no, our bodies, our metabolism and our bodies are still gonna outsmart us. And whether we like it or not, when we don't have enough fuel for the energy expenditure that we're used to, we just find like our lifestyle just winds up changing. Like it's just kind you of just, the way it goes. You just end up becoming more sedentary whether you realize it or not. Uh, I, could, I could throw out like a hundred different examples of things that I would be happy to do in the off season and that I would kind of have to convince myself to do dieting. Uh, cleaning my house. That's a great example. I'm like a little cleaner in the off season. Like I, you know, do all the floors every weekend. And even just in the last few weeks, like the weekend has come and I've been like, eh, floors are all right. Floors can go another week. It's all right. Um, and that's, I know, like I hear myself saying it, but I know it's just like my body's own way of trying to get me to do less. Mm -hmm. So the next one kind of piggybacks on top of this, but it's even more subconscious than making decisions to like go out or not go out. Uh, and that is neat. And that is non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And these are even less obvious ways that we conserve energy uh, throughout our day to day. I mean, it doesn't even matter what our lifestyle is, you know, things that we don't even think about, uh, you know, we wind up like tapping our toe less at our desk, like, we, you know, moving around to readjust our posture less, like shaking our hand while we're writing less, like any pacing on the phone, like when you're on the phone and you just walk back and forth. Yeah. These are things that you just stop doing. You know, like, so things that you would not even think about. And then if you were to sit there and analyze, you'd be like, oh, crap, I am kind of a little more sluggish than normal. Um, you know, before, like, those, it really adds up. Like, it, I, <laughs> studies have shown that it adds up to 60% of your decrease in metabolism. 60% of your decrease in metabolism are these little things that our first several contest preps, like we didn't think about these things at all. You know, we ate our macros, we went to the gym and did our training, and then we came home and sat on our asses for the rest of the day. So yes, our training was increasing and our macros were decreasing, but our overall caloric expenditure was getting less and less and less because we were doing less and less and less outside of the gym and training, but we thought, well, I checked off all my boxes, so I'm good now. I can just sit here and think about my next meal for the next two hours. Um, and I think this is really, really common. And if you don't know that it's coming, you can't look out for it. You, you won't even notice it's happening if you don't anticipate it ahead of time and have a game plan ahead of time because we're not the greatest thinkers when we are dieted down. Mm. So having a plan in advance for when these things start to happen is super, super important. And I'm thinking to myself, like my personality, I'm a pusher. And I'm thinking to myself, if I wasn't, if I didn't have a game plan in action, I just heard this po this message in this podcast, I would say to myself, well, screw that. I'm just going to like all these things that I don't normally do. I'm just going to just going to keep doing them. Like, but <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not that easy. Like it you can't. <laughs> it happens. You What's best is a totally non-vegan analogy, but you've heard the analogy of like the frog in the pot of boiling water. Like you put it in and turn the heat up and it, essentially it dies, but it do never tries to jump out of the pot because it doesn't even know what's happening. Dieting. 
think it's kind of like that in terms of how how much your activity just down regulates uh, without you even noticing until one day, many months after the diet, you think back and you're like, wow, I was kind of a slug, huh? Huh, didn't even notice that. Um, so yeah, those are ways that your caloric expenditure decreases when you're starting a diet. Um, let's also talk about the ways that our caloric intake increases along a diet and sort of why that would happen. I mean, it's pretty obvious, right? There's only one way your caloric intake could increase on a diet. You're eating more. There you go. So even when people have the best, best, best of intentions and they're tracking their macros really, really diligently, little sneaks of food can sort of find their way in, in lots of different ways. And uh, a client and friend of mine named Gwen actually taught me this little acronym of when you're having too many BLTs and it's not a bacon, lettuce, tomato, they are bites, licks, and tastes. And I think it's brilliant actually, because it totally happens where I'll give you an example of somebody with the best of intentions kind of shooting themselves in the foot um, when they're in the thick of dieting. Somebody who has been diligently planning everything out. Every Sunday they prep all their meals, they make big pots of everything, and then as they're going to divide it up into the containers, they're like, oh, I wonder how this turned out and has a bite of it. Or I just wanna see how this is going so far and has a bite of it or dumps everything out, but there's still like a little bit left stuck to the bottom of the pan and you kind of like eat the little bits at the bottom of the pan. It seems like nothing, right? But it adds up. When you think about the fact that your expenditure is going down every little bit that you have in addition to what's planned out can really, really add up. And I think it's very, very important to pay attention to these little bites, licks and tastes because they can they can cut your progress in half. And I don't say that meaning to be like a total hard ass. Like in the off season, if I'm not actively dieting, I am BLTing it up, let me tell you. Um, but when I have a goal of fat loss and you know, I, I really am like all about it and intending to do everything right, those little bits do start to sneak their way in. They started to sneak their way into my life about two weeks ago and then I noticed what was going on and I was like, oh no, 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 you don't. You don't wanna, you don't wanna stop making progress because of something so little and stupid when you're doing everything else right. So I'll give you some examples of mine. The meal prep one is actually a very good one. Um, little add-ons to my food, like I have my meals prepped, but then I sprinkle on some extra nooch at the end or some extra salsa, or I have more ketchup with my air-baked sweet potato fries, or I start using more stevia, which some stevia really is calorie-free, but most of it isn't really calorie-free. It's just very, very low in calories. So they can write zero calories, but if you're eating a ton of it every day, it adds up. Things like that really, really start to add up. So paying attention to that. And then I think even more important than that, being honest with yourself about it is critical. Yeah, and that's easier said than done. And I mean, 
I'm not going to sit here and assume that everyone's using scale and weighing things out um, in grams when they're portioning out their food. And especially when it comes to foods that are more calorically dense, like say peanut butter, for example, when your hunger is taking control of you, it is very, you don't even realize just how big these BLTs are and you wind up making, you know, bigger, bigger bites and, and, and more rounded scoops of stuff. And, and yep. yeah, I mean, like you can literally, you know, have you ever seen like a rounded scoop of peanut butter can be like as much as two tablespoons, like one tablespoon can be as much as two, for yep. example, without even realizing it. And you will over measure pretty easily when you're truly hungry. Yeah, so you know, you might be able to eyeball stuff at the beginning of a fat loss phase, but you're gonna have to start measuring at some point because your natural inclination is just gonna be to get, oh, just, oh, oh that's a little heavy handed. That's all right, that's all right. Because you're hungry, damn it. Like, just acknowledge that you're, you're hungry and your body's gonna, it does not want you to lose fat. Again, famine, caveman. So you need to be like, oh, gotcha. Um, and stop that from happening. Um, another thing is another way that people's caloric intake could be increasing without, you know, BLTs is if you have either a free meal or a refeed day. We are very much so of the mindset that a refeed day should be just as carefully tracked as a lower calorie day. So if you're doing that, maybe not an issue. But some people just kind of have um, like a, a free-for-all. They call it a refeed day, but really it's just like a free-for-all for a day. And then even more people just have like one free meal or oftentimes people call it a cheat meal um, every week. And while your cheat meal might be very moderate at the beginning of a dieting phase, you'll notice that week after week, it's getting a little bit more out of control. I'm a 135 pound woman, and I can easily on one plate going out to dinner, consume over a thousand calories. Just by ordering one thing off the menu and macroing it out later, I know it was over a thousand calories. That's one meal, and that's just ordering one thing and finishing it. Um, so it's very easy if you get like one thing and a dessert. Now you're closer to 16, 1700 calories, uh, and it can go from, maybe you have that and a cocktail. Now you're at 2000 calories. In order to drop one pound of body fat, you need to burn 3,500 calories more than you take in. I just described a pretty simple meal um, that would cut down that 3,500 calorie deficit to a mere 1,500. Now, rather than losing one pound a week, you're losing like 0.3 pounds that week. Um, and you know, 0.3 pounds, who can actually see that on the scale? Cause water and salt and stuff can alter it. So you can be at a quote unquote plateau for several weeks if your cheat meal is out of control. So I especially, I'm, I'm not a huge, huge fan of cheat meals. I really like to call them free meals. I don't even let my clients call them cheat meals. And, you know, I think having some guidelines to a free meal will help keep that from getting out of control. And then at some point you want to evaluate and reevaluate your free meal. And even, even if you're able to be sensible about it, there may be a short period of time where you need to make that executive decision and maybe just get rid of your free meal. Because let's face it, like it's when your hunger signals are that strong, I mean, it's, it's next, sometimes it can be next to near impossible to like, really honor 
the sensible portions that you need to have to continue to to lose body fat and furthermore like you can you can't even necessarily quantify it you know yeah i think that you know back to the like being honest with yourself thing i think it's really hard for most people to be honest with themselves when they go over their planned intake like i mean there have been times where i've gone over my planned intake and it is a shitty feeling to have to log it and see like how far over I went. Um, but I also think that it's a huge like character builder in fitness to be able to track even when you go over. So, so even if you go out to eat, you know, try to stay within your macro budget, but sometimes you're going to end up going over just because you're not hundred percent sure what's going to be brought out until it's kind of in front of you. But log it, track it anyway. Like, even if you didn't do what you hoped to do, I think it's important to just keep collecting that data. You might have a free meal and end up, you know, dropping weight, like have a big free meal and end up dropping weight that week. And that's that's a pretty important piece of data to have as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, there's, there's two sides to that for sure. Okay, so we talked about how your caloric expenditure can and will decrease. And we've talked about how you can end up eating more than you think you are eating. What can you do about those things? Well, there's nothing you can do about basal metabolic rate and the thermic effects of food, but we can do things about our lifestyle and our NEAT. So I think this is where you need to get a little creative with yourself, realistic and creative. You know, um, no matter what you do, you're gonna wind up uh, expending less energy with the same routine that you had before you started dieting. I think you just have to face that fact. That's just the way it's gonna be. I don't care how disciplined you are. I don't care what your willpower is. I feel like that, personally, I feel like that's just the way that it goes. But if you step outside the box and get creative, you can make up for that loss in energy expenditure in other ways. And this is gonna sound crazy, but it's as simple as walking. It's as simple as walking, walking, walking. Like. And, you know, and quantifying how much you're walking, not just like, oh, I think I'm just going to go on a walk today, like figuring out, um, one, how to incorporate walking into your daily regimen, and two, how much you're walking. Um, And the easiest way to do that is to track your steps. You know, some people have wearable devices to do this, like a Fitbit or what have you, Um, but most phones these days have built-in pedometers to them. I have an iPhone, so I don't really know how it works on Androids, but I know like in, on the iOS platform and the health kit, you can click on that and this always freaks people out. I mean, it's like crazy. What do these devices track on us? Like what don't they track on us? Yeah. (laughs) I remember the first day I looked at it and I I tapped the health kit and then I saw all of my steps for like years and I'm like, oh my God, I cannot believe this phone's been tracking my steps all this time, but it does. So I guess my point is you can keep your phone on you, make it a point to keep your phone on you all the time, especially when you're walking, figure out what your daily steps are on average and start bumping that up as much as like 1,000 to 2,500 to 5,000 more steps a day. Yeah, I think a smart thing to do before you even start dieting is find out how many steps a day on average you walk. Uh, Most people will be pretty bummed out to see that they probably walk like less than 5,000 steps a day, especially if they work at a desk, that might even be shooting high. Um, But with that knowledge, shoot for a step count when you start dieting and be sure to hit that step count every day. Um, I think a lot of people would be very surprised to know that this entire contest prep thus far, I have not done any cardio besides walking. 
and I'm only walking 8,000 steps a day. But here's that's the thing. Not, that's not even that much. So, you know, you can, as because I'm making up for the lowered activity, I'm sorry, because I'm making up for the lowered amount of activity with my lifestyle and my neat by walking extra steps, I haven't had to go hop on a, an elliptical and like plug away really hard and fast for 30 minutes. I'm not saying that's not going to happen at some point during this prep, but you can get really far without it. Well, it's more important than how far you can get without it is the reason why walking should take precedence over cardio, you know, like steady state or high intensity. And the reason being is because walking is not nearly as fatiguing. I mean, it's hardly fatiguing at all, really. And fatigue can halt you dead in your tracks for making progress. I mean, you, yeah, maybe you're the type of person that can push to a workout, but like you're doing yourself a disservice if you've accumulated so much fatigue that you can't properly recover. And let's face it, when you're not fueling yourself up properly because you're dieting, you're not going to recover regardless. So, you know, like your fatigue accumulation is something that's precious and you should like only use it when you need to, like for training. So just starting to do a whole bunch of cardio because you can take, get steps in quicker and burn fat faster is, is not necessarily smart. Yeah, so I think I, I am in agreement with Giacomo that your steps and paying attention to the number of steps you get per day is far and away the best thing you can do to limit your lowered caloric expenditure. Another thing that you can do, and I think it's wise to do this before you start dieting, is to kind of plan out a schedule in advance, like a couple months in advance at least. Think about the things that you're wanting to do. Um, for example, at Easter coming up next week or at various holidays or different events that you want to go to, maybe concerts, this or that, like commit to them from the beginning and then follow through with it because you kind of feel pretty crummy um, into a diet after a while and you don't really want, want to do as much. So if you're making a decision on that day, you're probably going to not really be in the mood to do it. Um, but you'll always feel better if you actually do do it. And it will only help your diet along if you keep up with your normal activities. If you normally golf with your buddies on the weekends, keep that commitment. Because if when you start to take them away, it just chips away at your energy deficit and you can hit a plateau. I mean, yeah, as best as you can. You also have to be realistic with yourself. Like if, if like you're in a terrible mood and you have shit energy and you just can't do something, like don't force it. But yeah, definitely try to keep up. The food situation, I feel like we mostly covered. Like it's about being really, really aware, paying attention to what you're doing and being honest with yourself. There are some other reasons that plateaus can happen and I think they're a little bit more complicated than we'll be able to really get into in this one podcast, so I'll just kind of generalize it. One of the main reasons that a lot of people plateau is because they're pushing too hard, too fast, or for too long. Basically, they are just dieting too much and the pushback from their body is so intense that progress is so slow that it feels like almost nothing and, and you feel like shit all the time. And a lot of times that's from people starting with way too much cardio, a deficit that's way, way too steep, and then doing it for really extended periods of time. It is so, it is the most frequent thing that we come across when people 
are looking to work with us and they're a little lost and, or they just want to like continue the course, I, I, I would care to say about like 70% of the people that inquire uh, to work with us are doing like way too, going to way too extreme measures right out the gate. And it's like, whoa, what are you doing? Why are you consuming 1200 calories and doing two hours of cardio? on your first week of prep, like that's crazy. Well, I don't fault people for that because again, like when I think back to my first prep, I just remember that do or die mentality. Like I'm going to be a friggin' beast and I'm going to win. And it's like, boy, wouldn't it be cool if like the amount of chance we had of looking incredible was solely based on how beastly we could be? Like we'd all be beasts <laughs> if that was all it took, but it takes so much more than that and a lot of times more means actually doing less and pacing yourself so we talked about a lot of physiological changes that take place but when and a lot of those are hormonal too but again you're not really interested in what is happening you're just interested in the fact that you're not getting the results that you want but suffice it to say if the energy deficit i.e too much cardio way too little food if the energy deficit is too steep some of the hormonal changes that happen are just like too much for your body to continue to make like predictable progress through. Um, obviously, if you starve yourself long enough, you will continue. You will drop weight. You will continue to drop weight. That's been proven time and time again. There's no such thing as I'm eating too little to lose weight. Um, but there is such a thing as I'm losing too little to lose body fat predictably and have enough energy to get through my day and live my actual life. Um, I think there's kind of a, 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 like there's some fitness myths about I'm eating too little so I can't lose weight. Um, it usually goes back to that, uh, the things that happen to your total energy expenditure situation. But at any rate, you don't need to feel like absolute garbage all the time to drop body fat. And when you push too hard, too fast for too long, um, you're going to feel like absolute garbage. And some of the hormonal changes that happen may be severe and some of them may be irreparable where you often find women with thyroid conditions after having dieted too hard for too long. So there's many, many reasons um, to not just go flying right out of the gate. And this is probably the most practical and helpful for anybody listening to this because it is not going to make your fat loss more successful. It's going to make it much, much harder, much, much slower, and much less predictable. So if you're in that situation, what would you do? Well, that's easy. I would bump my calories up and I would do less cardio. And I would also make sure to reevaluate what my uh, end target is, what my goal is. And if it's one that's too close in proximity, then I need to make a decision. I need to be able to find a target that's further out uh, and shoot for that. Or I need to just stop what I'm doing and um, save it for another time. Because I mean, like some people literally are working towards a specific show. It's an X number of weeks. And it's like, there's nothing in their area after that. And it's like, well, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, you really have to bite the bullet here and maybe consider not doing this right now because it's not necessarily in your best interest. And you may be unsatisfied with the results no matter how hard you work at it because of, you know, whatever the starting point was. Um, but hopefully, you know, there's there's a way to extend the period 
um, of time that you have to diet because that's ultimately what you need. Yeah, and I think in a contest prep situation, like you just mentioned, that's a hundred percent accurate. The you know we have to say to people very frequently, like this is this is very very not ideal for you to continue prepping for this show. Um, you know, it's up, it's, it's your body, it's your choice to do what you want to do, but like, we won't coach people into that show. Um, and it's tough because, you know, I know for a fact there are plenty of coaches out there ready to take people's money and put them through hell to get them on stage um, just to say that they did and then kind of wash their hands clean of them when the prep is over and they have all these problems going on. Um, but that's not going to be us. So <laughs> we will, uh, we'll just let people know and not just like, nope, we're not touching that one. More like, hey, these are some things that maybe you could do differently. I don't think that this show is ideal for you. Or you can compete at this show, but you're not going to look the way you want to look. Exactly. Um, which some people are okay with that. Some people are like, well, it's my first season. It's okay if I don't look great. Um, but for, for people in a general fat loss phase, I also think what you said is totally correct. Like, um, my coach Berto has this quote and he actually stole it from somebody else. So this is a quote like several times removed, but he says, the goal is to keep the goal, the goal. And it sounds so silly, but the number of people who set out on one journey and then get hyper-focused on something else, um, you know, they didn't keep the goal, the goal. So you want to keep the end game in mind at all times. What is the end game? Well, the end game isn't to just like look shredded for a, a summer. The end game is, you know, for 90% of people, it's to be like fairly aesthetic most of the time for the rest of their life, right? Sure. Like generally, I mean, who doesn't want to like look good pretty much all the time? So keeping that in mind and like, being sure to not shoot yourself in the foot right now so that you can look shredded for this one event, but maybe you're not gonna like the way you look at all for an entire year after that. Um, you know, you didn't keep the goal the goal at that point. You lost sight of the goal for a shorter term goal. And I think that that's really, really important. And not, I mean, we all have fallen victim to that at one point or another focusing on something that's too close and kind of forgetting the big picture and we've all paid for it at one point or another so anytime that you know i can kind of help steer somebody away from those long-term missteps um, for short-term gratification i definitely want to do that yeah i think that if you have been doing too much cardio dieting too hard or have just kind of been in a deficit for more than six months it's time to like call the diet quits for a while, eat at maintenance, chill on the cardio, um, and just kind of let your body resettle. Yes, you're not gonna make fat loss progress right there, but you're probably not gonna gain body fat either. In fact, when you start eating at maintenance, you might find that you actually drop several pounds of just water weight, because your cortisol has been through the friggin' roof, because your body's been under so much stress. Um, by eating at maintenance, you're gonna feel better, you're gonna think better, and you, even if the scale doesn't change, you're probably going to look better because bodies in a deficit in general, they don't look great. That's why bodybuilders eat, you know, a fair amount of carbs the week before they go on stage. It's because depleted bodies kind of look like crap. Well, and here's another thing about that period of time that you might think you're just you sort of set yourself back. Um, you're still working towards your goal. 
because you're able to train harder, which means you're able to gain some muscle and put that on your frame so that when you're, as you're continuing to lean out, even though it's a little slower, you've used this period of time to sort of reestablish your, your physique and, and put a little more muscle on in the process. And that's actually conducive towards your goals. So you're not, you know, that's, that's like one perspective and one way to look at it also that's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm not taking a step back here. I'm just using this time to continue to develop my package that I'm ultimately going to present on stage or for a photo shoot or for whatever it is that you're looking to do. Yeah, longevity. Longevity is key. Uh, I think the last thing we want to discuss about this is actually identifying if you're in a plateau or not. Um, we coach a lot of people who are making great progress, but week after week we are like, oh, I'm not losing weight. Oh, I'm not not doing anything. Or like, I'm stuck. Um, and I think that, you know, these are people that we talk to every single week and even they get stuck with this like mental taffy of like, I'm in a plateau when they're not actually in a plateau. Um, so I assume that there's probably tons of people out there who think they're plateaued, who just aren't being patient enough. Um, you're not going to see changes on the scale every single week. It's not going to happen. Um, you might have a couple weeks you see changes in a row, and then you might have three weeks where it doesn't freaking move, um, et cetera, et cetera. But don't think that that's a plateau. I would say you're probably not in a plateau until you haven't seen any change in either scale, picture, or measurements in a month. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's fair to say. Yeah, I think, I think that it's a month, honestly. And for myself in my own prep right now, I uh, have not changed my macros, not once, since the beginning of February. Uh, maybe even the last week of January. My, my macros, my low day macros have not changed once and I've continued to lose body fat. And again, I have a super efficient metabolism. It adapts to almost everything. So refeeds, diet breaks, those have been helping me to prevent myself from hitting a plateau. But I think that people go one week without seeing a change on the scale and immediately want to slash calories. And I think that's kind of jumping the gun and you do that week after week. And then where do you end up? You end up being that person who has shot themselves in the foot and is dieting too hard and doing too much cardio. And that's what happens when you set deadlines that are too close for one, but also just when you're not patient and don't have realistic expectations well i think the other thing that you need to rem remember is that you know you even whether you're a seasoned veteran to the dieting game or whether you're um a little newer to it either which way sometimes you're developing skills and sometimes you got to sharpen those skills up again and that takes a little bit of time and i think that's an advantage when you you know you get into the dieting phase and you give yourself adequate time because, you know, at that point, if, you know, if you don't allow yourself the ability to, I guess, get in the zone, so to speak, um, you're also potentially shooting yourself in the foot. You know, you don't have like the habits built, the routine built, the life, your life in order. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, people, uh, I think that if you're, this is completely an aside, but if you are thinking about doing a contest prep, get in touch with the person that you want to coach you long before the prep should start long 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 before the prep should start because you need to learn all of these skills because if you're learning them 
for the first time on day one of a competition prep, you are going to have so many hiccups along the road just because there's so much to learn and it's flipping your life basically on its ass for the next six months. Um, learn these skills in the off season. You will be more successful in your prep. That's all I'm going to say about that. All right, so I guess that's it about fat loss plateaus. Maybe this sparked more questions than it answered. But I definitely think there are some really important takeaways here that you can literally just extract from this podcast right now and put them to use tonight to help keep you on the road to reaching your fat loss goals. We haven't had a product review in a while and it just so happens that I have something really yummy in front of me that we got earlier this week and I'm pretty excited to talk about it. Uh, it's called, the brand name is Pintful and uh, let's see, they call it the world's healthiest peanut butter. And I guess they call it that because it's a protein peanut butter. So here's, here's actually something that, okay, like health-wise aside that I found to be really awesome about this uh, the way that they made this peanut butter. You know, yeah, it's really cool, it has protein and all, but I found I found that it was pretty fluffy, actually. And usually when I'm putting peanut butter on something, I wanna add to it. And I, you know, I just wanna make it, you know, whatever, like add chocolate, add sweetener, um, add something to enhance the texture as opposed to just the peanut butter itself. I mean, I'm a peanut butterholic just like anyone else, and I could just slather a whole bunch onto a piece of bread or apple or whatever, but, you know, I guess my point is this particular uh, peanut butter was especially like fluffy and creamy and it's funny because when I when we got this when we got this product to try out I thought to myself like eh it uh you know maybe it'll be just as good as regular peanut butter but I wonder what the protein could possibly take away from it taste wise um so it definitely surprised me to uh figure out that adding protein to the peanut butter and improving the macronutrient Pro, uh, profile also wound up uh, indirectly improving the taste of it. So that's a win. Um, anyway, uh, this product is not commercially available yet, but they do have a Kickstarter to launch it next week. Um, it's a super awesome company, cool people standing behind the product. And um, yeah, I, I'm definitely a fan. So we'll leave a link below in the notes for this episode if you want to check it out for yourself. And it's called Pintful Peanut Butter. So another thing, um, keep your eyes out because I did make a peanut butter cup recipe with this product and it should be up on the Instagram either this week or next week, but be sure to keep your eyes out for it. It was really, really good and I think you guys are going to like it. Okay, so... I'm 17 years old and have been vegan for four years. For the past two years, I've been having digestive problems, mainly constipation. I've been taking a probiotic for two months and drink around 85 ounces of water a day. I eat 95% whole foods and don't eat meat substitutes. Nothing seems to help. Do you have suggestions? They're constipated and they're having how much whole foods in there? Like 85% of their foods 95. are whole foods. 95% whole foods. And I'm assuming they're not dieting. We don't, we don't have that. Okay. So here's the thing. Like, have they taken a look at their fiber intake? Because um, speaking from experience, it could be really cool to be like a, a militant clean eater. 
but for those of us who are athletes and um, what we do is very calorically demanding, if the majority of our foods are whole food, uh, plant-based in nature, um, chances are our fiber intake is probably a little bit on the higher side. Um, I feel like a good way, a good gauge would be, correct if I'm wrong, I think it's like maybe 10 to 12 grams, 10 to 15 grams of fiber per 1,000 calories, something like that. It's 14, but who's counting? Whatever. I mean, (laughs) personally, I feel like vegans tend to get away with eating more fiber because I I think like our our gut is just used to being able to break down more fiber, but that doesn't mean that we can go crazy with it. Um, And there are whole foods that are lower in fiber, so I'm not saying to like just go out and like replace your, uh, I don't know, uh, sweet potatoes with cereal, try doing something like replacing them with white potato or, you know, try replacing your brown rice with white rice. Like, no, it's not like the complete of like the completest whole foods, but you're still getting a very nutrient dense uh, diet. I think that standard American diet, like we always tell people get more fiber, get more fiber, but vegans actually tend to err on the side of like too much fiber. So when you're thinking about fiber, we always explain it as like, think of it like a broom sort of cleaning out your insides. Well, it can also be kind of like hair getting stuck in a bathtub drain. And if you think about it that way, it explains why some people that eat really high fiber diets have all sorts of gas, bloating, constipation, because they're basically like plugged up with too much fiber. So I've had many clients that this, they've been like, hey, I don't know why this is happening, but I'm like super gassy this week. And we usually just cut back on the fiber, one. Um, not not a ton, we're certainly not going low fiber or anything, still usually well in the realm of more than what's recommended um, by most doctors. And uh, just doing something as simple as, like you said, s- switching the brown rice to white rice, um, changing some of the cruciferous vegetables to non-cruciferous vegetables, that is often enough to help keep digestion issues down. On the flip side of that, also increasing your water. So mm-hmm. 85, per, 85 ounces sounds pretty good, actually, yeah. for somebody who's already eating a lot of whole foods, which are exactly. high water content. But, you know, maybe try bumping it up and see what happens. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Vegan Proteins Muscles by Brussels Radio. Feel free to stay in touch with us on the social medias on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Vegan Proteins and at Muscles by Brussels. Once again, my name is Giacomo. And I'm Danny. And we'll see you in a couple weeks.